Welcome to the Kids Corner, where we explore sensory processing, development, and play with purpose as it pertains to eating, sleeping, playing, and growing. On this podcast, we will educate you on the lesser-known topics, give practical tips and tricks to help elevate your practice, and provide resources for families and caregivers. We are your hosts. I'm Bean, the co-founder of ReU and a recovering paraplegic. And I'm Nancy, a kinesiologist specializing in pediatrics, facilitating learning and development through movement and play therapies. So today we're going to be talking to one of our ReU moms, who's the mom of one of our very special kiddos. We're talking to Miranda Dahl, who is the founder of the nonprofit Mindfully Inclusive. And we're super excited to to talk to her about her new project and her family and all of the struggles and wins that they've faced. So Miranda, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you guys. Yeah, we're really happy to have you here too. Why don't we just get right into it? Do you want to just tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. I am from Edmonton. I was born here and then grew up in Spruce Grove lived here most of like all of my life moved to the country when I was nine years old and you know grew up with two younger brothers enjoyed quadding mowing lawn kind of thing and just a small town girl what else could I tell you that I was basically not really big into sports and stuff when I was younger (laughs) I was asking my husband what to tell him about myself growing up and it's like well what did you play what did you do I'm like no I hated all contact sports I always ended up winded or with a bleeding nose (laughs) (laughs) so it wasn't until I was like in my 20s that I found yoga and was like I like this this is better I enjoyed like getting into fitness and looking after myself in my 20s and getting into probably the best shape of my life before, you know, having kids and stuff. Awesome. That's good. Health is really important. Yeah. Yeah. I went on to take like my 200 hour yoga teacher training during like those years too and got pretty serious about my practice and went on some yoga retreats to Mexico That was, you know, looking back, such a luxury to be able to do that. And not just because of everything going on in the world right now, but now that we have like a family and a child with a disability, it's it's nice that I took the time when I did to travel and enjoy seeing other parts of the world because it might not be so easy to do so now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about this little kiddo. So he's one of our faves. I know we can't have favorites. All of them are our favorites, (laughs) but we love Vinny so much. So let's talk about your pregnancy and how that went. And just tell us about the journey of how Vinny was born. Sure. So while I was pregnant with him, you know, I felt really great. I was so happy to be pregnant. Got pregnant very easily, naturally. And I continued to work my whole pregnancy. I had a job in sales in the modular trailer industry. I loved my career that I had before having him too and desk job kind of, but I felt really good. I I craved lots of cheeseburgers and that was kind of rare for me. So I was like, oh, it must be a boy, but we never found out the gender. And then further into the pregnancy, they started to notice Vincent's head growth, that it was just like large in comparison to the rest of his growth, I guess. So I probably had seven ultrasounds to continue following up on his head size. 
and they even sent me to like the Royal Alec for more detailed ultrasounds, but they didn't ever like tell me anything. So we didn't find out his diagnosis or know that he was going to be a special kiddo during pregnancy. They just didn't want me to go overdue with him because of the head size. So I remember working like up to two days before he was born. And it was only because the hospital, my doctor were like, we're going to induce you with like a gentle induction that we're going to send you home with. So I was like, okay, I'll get off work today and we'll come in like tomorrow. (laughs) And so we did that and he was born on May 27th. He just turned four a couple days ago. And it wasn't until he was about eight months old that we actually got a diagnosis for him that he has a rare genetic disorder. So if we want to go into like how his birth was a little bit, when he came out, he had very low Abgar scores. You know, I didn't get to hold him right away. He wasn't really crying. They had to intervene with forceps and he was very, very bruised. Like I I don't think I've ever even shared his newborn photos because his face was black and there was like a whole chunk of his cheek missing basically from the forceps oh my goodness yeah the lacerations on his face there was some above his eyebrow he couldn't move his left arm because of the force of being pulled out and yeah I just remember like Drew really wanting to cut the cord and be involved and like there was none of that allowed to even happen And it was like the middle of the night, it was like four in the morning. So, you know, I didn't get my doctor, I got the doctor on call. And I didn't know anybody in the room. It was very, just a weird, not what I expected. I went into it the most calm, level headed, like kind of the person I am, I'm pretty chill. But now that I look back, I'm like, wow, that was pretty traumatic for poor Vinny. And make me too, and us as new parents delivering a baby. So they sent us to the NICU within that hospital. We stayed at the Misericordia for five days, I think. And they did a CT scan on his head to ensure there was like no bleeding. It came back normal. He was just quiet kind of a lethargic baby in the beginning. And once he was feeding, they sent us home and... We were like, okay, I guess, you know, we move on. We had little follow-ups to make sure his left arm was going to be okay and went to the Glenrose at like maybe five weeks old or something. And they said, yeah, it's just shock from, you know, traumatic delivery, but it's 75% of the time it bounces back and his has, he's using it and moving it. Thinking back, he just was to us a normal babe. Up until about like maybe two months old, we started to notice he wasn't turning his head left to right. It was so oblong shaped that he wasn't able to actually lay on the back of it. Okay. And so I brought it up to our family doctor and just said, you know, it seems like it's hard for him and we can move it, but he's not. And so she referred us to the head shape clinic at the Stollery where they did a 3D CT scan at like eight weeks old. And like right off the hop, before they even did the scan, the lady that came in the room said, oh, it looks like sagittal craniosynostosis and you'll probably need surgery. I remember thinking, what did you just say? Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, sure enough, he had a form of craniosynostosis where there's 
platelets fuse together in the head. So you have seven skull plates, and Vincent had the most common form where the top two plates were fused together. And in order for his head to be able to grow in all directions, basically we did have to intervene and do surgery to open that up. And so they sent us home and I remember, you know, jumping on Google and going, okay, I got to really understand this because it sounds invasive to me. I've never heard of this. And mm-hmm. <laughs> they're going to cut my baby's head open. And so then he was about, I think they booked surgery really quickly. He got it at 16 weeks and it corrected the shape quite a bit just from the surgery, but it wasn't enough. So we had to follow it up with helmet therapy so once it healed like he had a scar from ear to ear and once that healed probably a month later we started going for weekly appointments where he had a cute little plastic helmet that was always made too small and had to be remade and recasted and was like some of the hardest appointments looking back with a new baby that at the time I didn't know had so much more you know going on because he was hypotonic and had low muscle tone but I didn't know what that was and why he wasn't developing like a typical child would be or a typical baby yeah but surgery successful you know it's basically a cosmetic thing they told me we were told most children have normal cognitive development and achieve good results after surgery so We just, you know, continued to assume that everything was fine and we did the helmet therapy for a few months and then then we really started to notice just development was slow and we're like, okay, you know, he's not sitting up, he's not trying to get on all fours and he would have these little eye flickers, like these split second eye rolls when he was about six months old where he would drop a toy or zone out then come right back. And we had so much going on. It was Christmas time. We just found out our dog had leukemia and was really sick. And so we were putting our dog on prednisone, a steroid, to try and help the cancer. He went for like a big stomach surgery, actually, too, because they thought it was something and he ingested. So anyways, like, you know how life just happens all at once. And we're dealing with like this vet bill and the sick dog and this like sutures on his belly and and that was the dog that my husband and I first got together after being married and and then it was the exact same weekend as all happened our dog Cash passed away in the night at home the day we were supposed to take him in to get him put down and Vincent needed to be taken to the ER for his seizures so (laughs) yeah trauma yeah that's a lot for one family in one weekend. Mm-hmm. So we took him into the stallery and after some testing and an EEG, he was diagnosed with a rare, like catastrophic form of epilepsy called infantile spasms. Okay. And so we weren't there too long. I remember we were basically given the diagnosis, given a prescription for a medication called Sabril, and Then I also remember them writing a few notes on our discharge papers, like hypotonia, macrocephaly, and send for genetic testing. And so we ended up being asked before we left if they could do the blood work to check for any genetic disorder. And I just know at the time I still knew nothing about any of this. And so, of course, I said yes, because any answers we could get for his future to help understand him would be ideal. Yeah, of course. And I think we're one of the fortunate families that actually got testing quite early. I know 
you know, many families wait years to get these answers. So I don't even know if I was quite ready for the answers when we got them. We, it was like a few weeks later and we were told Vincent has a rare genetic diagnosis known as a micro deletion on his third chromosome. So it's called like 3Q13, blah, blah, blah. It's so rare. It doesn't really have a name other than that. And that would explain, you know, the delays we were seeing and these new seizures and basically a bit of an unknown future for him, which I think was the hardest part. Like nothing was textbook for somebody who's so factual. I was like, well, I want to know like what to expect now. It's like, well, it's not really black and white. (laughs) Yeah, it usually never is. (laughs) No. So it was, yeah, definitely an uncomfortable, probably the most uncomfortable feeling I've ever felt to not know what the future held for my new baby. And at the same time, we had just, you know, put him on this new medication, which really put Vincent into a major drug fog. He no longer was, like, he stopped smiling. He wasn't making eye contact or wanting to eat anymore. And he was in such a drug fog that I was so concerned about, like, are we supposed to be medicating him this heavily? Like, he's only eight months old. Yeah. I went back to my, you know, rabbit hole of research because that's just how I am. And I was finding out that we maybe weren't on the best treatment for infantile spasms. And I attempted to ask our neurologist at the time, like, you know, I'm reading that a steroid is one of the frontline treatments for this type of epilepsy, prednisone, or there's another one, ATCH, that they use in the States, I think it's called. No, we don't want to put him on that. You know, we're just going to wait it out with this sabral and see. And I'm like, but it's not like clinically, he's not changing nothing. Like if anything, he's just going downhill in my eyes. So that was hard because I, you know, joined some Facebook groups and reached out to other moms. There's a huge community for infantile spasms. And so many were saying, you need prednisone. You need one of the steroids. Like you need to nip these in the butt. They're catastrophic. They're hurting his brain. Everyone that he has, every day that goes by, you need to get more support or the right medication path. So I, you know, I'm like telling my husband and my family, I'm like, I need a different doctor. I got to get a second opinion. So sure enough, like six months later, after I waited to get in with a new neurologist, we did and they lowered his dose of the sabral, put him on prednisone immediately. And like, I don't even know if it was a week and I saw Vincent like making eye contact and smiling at me again. Oh, wow. So it worked right away for a short period of time for him. I think he went from one end of the spectrum to the other. It like put his adrenals in overdrive and he was like hungry again, like, you know, a bit of that steroid rage. He was not sleeping, but in a way it was good because I was like, I see like my baby coming back. Right. So anyways, one round of steroids for like six weeks and we saw the spasms again. So it only worked temporarily which can be common to go for a second round of steroids. So we did. And the doctor, our new neurologist, Dr. Sinclair, he's been amazing. They call him the emperor of epilepsy at the Stollery. (laughs) Said that, I'm so scared he's going to retire because I know he's got to be like 70. (laughs) (laughs) But he said that um, Vincent's EEG was looking great, that the hips arrhythmia was gone, and that he feels the second set of steroids worked. But the trouble in my eyes was that clinically, I was still seeing these darn spasms. 
it's so confusing. Epilepsy. I didn't know there was a million kinds of epilepsy. I didn't know that, you know, it can change as children and adults grow. And mm-hmm. so now that he's a toddler, they have diagnosed, like changed his infantile spasms into myoclonic jerk seizures. So now they're not damaging. They are still like present and he has these little like head drops or little hiccups or sometimes almost like a little body jolt and he'll drop his milk or whatever but they're not like he's still able to develop and he actually is doing quite well today despite this ongoing you know seizure activity and need for treatment so he attends early ed preschool at a public school which I love he uses both his wheelchair and his walker at school And he really does love social interaction. You know, he's nonverbal, but he has so much to say, as you guys know. Yep. And yeah, he has a whole support team now, which, you know, was really hard to get to where we are today, I feel, as a new mom, as a special needs mom, whatever. It's like, we really have fought tooth and nail to get all the supports and learn about all the therapies and I wanted him to have access to everything, but I had to research so much and meet other moms to find out about them. And gosh, he was like a year old and I was doing a program from the UK called the Snowdrop program that he was just a little baby and I knew there had to be more out there than this home care physio that came to the house and would never pick him up. (laughs) (laughs) So we're so glad we found Ryu eventually too and are so thankful to have you guys in our city because Vincent loves going and it's so good for him. Well, we love having him and the changes that we've seen him in him are incredible as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, you touched on, you said that you didn't know anything about epilepsy and this journey and you had to do so much research on your own. And I feel like so many people are kind of thrown into that, into that like, you know, road as well, right? Like we often say, unless you are, or someone in your circle is affected by disability, most people just don't know about it. And then when you are affected by it, then you're just inundated with so much information. And as good as Google is, sometimes it's not the best place to be looking for answers, right? But I'm glad to hear that there was a large community of support for you on Facebook Mm -hmm. and that uh, you were able to find some help through that because it is a very lonely journey when you feel like no one else is feeling these things with you, especially when you have such a rare diagnosis. Right. And it's so true. And I remember asking like an early intervention lady that came to our home, you know, who else has hypotonia and macrocephaly and like who else in this community that's like Vincent, who can I connect with sort of thing? And she was of no real help and basically said, there's nobody like Vincent and I don't know of any other moms I can connect you with, you know, sorry, mm-hmm. basically. And it's like, you know, that was just a gut punch. Like what I really needed was just one mom in this world that's been through one of these things that could say, you know, me too. And I get it. And yeah. Yeah. So, and that kind of leads us to, you know, mindfully inclusive and a big part of why I wanted to start something more than just a Facebook chat or an Instagram chat is there's so much need for support out there for new moms entering this journey and new dads and families. And if I can be of one little bit of support to a new mom, like to show them and help them that they're not alone, like the sooner they can know that the better, right? 
Yeah, 100%. And that's why we've, you know, referred you to a bunch of other moms that have come to Ryu as well, because mm-hmm. we just feel like that community aspect is very much needed. And that was one of the driving forces of why we created Ryu, mm-hmm. right? It's one of the biggest byproducts of Ryu and one of the most impactful that we hear from a lot of our clients with many different diagnoses, right? They just feel so so much support and seeing other people struggle and like, you know, going through that struggle with them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So going back to you, you kind of touched a bit on why you started Mindfully Inclusive. So I guess, so what was the hardest part about, I guess, deciding to start Mindfully Inclusive? I didn't know if it was the right thing to do to be putting like Vincent a bit on the spotlight and sharing our journey more publicly. And I guess that was just my apprehensiveness. And like, I had to talk to my husband and say, like, how do you feel about it? Because it's our personal life if I start sharing a little bit more about him and what we've been through. But I just knew that being vulnerable and outweighing those like little worries and those maybe cons were just, it was worth it. And I just knew that it would be even if I just helped like one mom and and I have already. And so I know that it's worth it. And I just like the barriers I've seen too, or that you really have to be your own advocate. So following up to get in with specialists and digging deep to find out what therapies and treatments are out there. Like I said, it's not black and white. And there is no handbook that says, right, like, hey, there, this is how you parent a child with extensive medical needs. So, you know, with Mindfully Inclusive, I have started a blog where I want to talk more about that and talk about like the equipment that's out there and what we've tried and what has worked and what hasn't worked and what therapies we've tried and all the alternative therapies that are out there that, you know, because they're not covered or funded by anything such as the government, they aren't really advertised in a way, right? So we've tried ABM therapy and a few different alternatives like that. And we go to Ryu, obviously. And I think it's so important that we share that with moms entering the community with a child who's received a diagnosis of whatever sort. So mm-hmm. so basically a big pool of information available to moms that are looking for that help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's It's just another form of support. And I think instead of, you know, when we turn to Google, like I often do, I think if you can find a blog from another mom that says, you know, this is my journey of discovering rare, which is on there, it it just, it adds a bit of comfort, I guess, like it eases the worries maybe a tiny bit and maybe brings down that anxiety knowing that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. I guess I should clarify. It's not just for moms. It's for families. It's for a- anybody, really. I think I, the part I love about Mindfully Inclusive is that you're really catering to the general public as well. It's not just for families. It's a big educational platform as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. And I think, like I say, moms, because that's who ends up like reaching out to me first. We're also like just tend to be more eager and we're the ones sharing on social media a lot of the time too. But it's for the whole public and it's for those families who don't have a disability in their family because like so many families and friends have said we're so lucky to have a special needs mom in our life because we've learned so much from you and that's I think always stuck with me because I thought wow can I really be a source of education can I be like a small reference guide for families to learn about disabilities like can I do that you know I didn't really dawn on me until I was being told that I already was so That's what Mindfully Inclusive started from as well, is 
is just people asking for it. They want to learn and they want to know how to be more inclusive. So yeah, let's learn. Yeah. So can we talk about, uh, I guess, inclusion a little bit more? So I guess, how did you feel about inclusion before you had Vinny? Was that even something that was on your mind? I guess like I'm very much an empath and I have always, I can sense when someone is feeling left out in general. And I, mm-hmm. I'd never feel comfortable hosting something or going to an event where one person wasn't part of like the chatting circle. I've always wanted to include everyone from a young age because I know what it feels like to not be included. You know, I think we were all 12 years old in grade seven once. And that's, you know, part of feeling left out and not being included. And and I was chatting with a friend the other day about how, like, when I went to school, to elementary, which is actually the same school Vincent's going to now, which is super cool. Mm-hmm. All the kids who had, you know, special needs or a disability were segregated to their own classroom. And many of them were put all in one school, even at one point, at least out here in Spruce Grove. And I just think, what was that teaching us? Like, it didn't really give us kids an opportunity to even learn about the differences. And we didn't really get a ton of social interaction. I feel like there was maybe events they would do where they would bring them maybe one at a time or I don't know, something like that. But it was never how it's becoming today, which I love. So I think more than ever, inclusion should be prioritized in schools and like sports. And like, there's always a way to include someone, even if they can't do the things exactly like you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when I was in elementary, we had we had a buddy program. So we were paired. It was grade sixes were paired with grade ones, but it didn't matter ability or disability. Mm-hmm. Everybody got a buddy. So I think that was really cool that, you know, small town elementary school was was doing. Yeah, that's awesome. Inclusive. And even in Vincent's early education class, like they took it away this year because of funding, but they're bringing play partners back next year. So he's in an early ed class to receive all the supports, but next year they'll have play partners that are his age that are, I guess, neurotypical little kids that, you know, help with that interaction, but make it more inclusive in my opinion. So. Mm. Oh, that's super awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I think like by classrooms being segregated and by kids with disabilities being put in their own school or in their own classroom, that's kind of what has perpetuated the stigma around people with disabilities. And then like you said, Miranda, when they would bring one kid in at a time, like that kind of to me shows that like, you know, uh, that's maybe where the inspiration porn kind of stuff started, right? Like look at this kid, they're, you know, going through struggles and stuff and making other kids feel better about themselves based on seeing somebody else that's different. And I think that is where a lot of the stigma stuff started. And we have so much work to do to reverse that stigma. And I really do enjoy seeing the inclusion part in schools now. And, you know, I do talk to a lot of schools and a lot of classrooms and stuff, and they do have people with kids with disabilities mixed into regular classes as well. And so that just get opens the eyes to all the able-bodied neurotypical kids that, you know, just because somebody is different doesn't mean they're any less than you. And I think that's really important for our society to really wrap their head around, which is why I'm so glad you're doing Mindfully Inclusive because I'm glad, yeah, like Nancy said, it's targeted to, you know, that neurotypical able-bodied population as well because that education is what's going to get rid of that stigma. Yeah. Yeah. That's my hope for sure. All right. So maybe we can just define what inclusion means to you, Miranda. What does it mean to be inclusive? 
I think just it's simple, like making sure everybody has a seat at the table, right? So if people can educate themselves and their children to include everyone and maybe be the brave kid to introduce yourself first and to be kind to those that may be different than them and understand that we're not all exactly the same, then that'll help make a more inclusive world. Good answer. (laughs) All right. And then I'll, I guess, direct this question to you, Bean. What does inclusion mean to you? To me, it means that everyone is included in everything that they're doing. So just simply, just kind of like Miranda said, like everyone needs to be included. And like she said before, too, we've all been in that, you know, grade seven, you know, that lunchtime kind of space where you don't have anybody to sit with and you're kind of awkward and alone. Mm -hmm. And when you have a disability, it's kind of like that feeling on steroids. And so if everyone, yeah, just everyone being included in, in every activity is what inclusion means to me. And I think some of the common misconceptions about inclusion are that like even though say Vincent is one out of 500 kids that may use a wheelchair in a school, inclusion isn't about pointing out that and like pointing out that he uses a wheelchair, knowing all the facts about him and his needs. It's really just about normalizing the fact that he has a disability. And I can really appreciate when parents let their kids speak up and say, hey, look, like he has a wheelchair, but follow up by saying, yeah, that's cool. Let's ask him his name and, you know, maybe his favorite animal. Because a child with a disability is so, like, so much more than their equipment or their visible needs. So to include them, we just need to get to know them. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I agree. Can I ask you then, how does it feel as a mom to have the word disability describe your child? You know, in the beginning, when I first received Vincent's diagnosis, I really stumbled over my words big time. Like, I didn't know how to explain to people that he wasn't a typical baby or a toddler running around. Like, I would say things like extra needs or which only confused people more who didn't know him. And so I think using the word disability is is good. It's more black and white. It's simple. It's factual. It is what it is. And it should be normalized. I agree. I mean, I think many people feel that saying disability can be harsh or have a negative persona, but that's only because the world has made it that way. And so I think the more we use it and say it, the more it just becomes part of this world. And we know the disability community is a huge part of this world. Yep. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think there's a big distinction between having a disability and being disabled. Right. Like I for sure have a disability, but I certainly don't consider myself disabled. And I feel like that disabled part is more of your mentality than anything else. Right. Like Mm -hmm. it's having that stigma and having that like thought process that people, somebody who's different needs help all the time or they can't do anything on their own. And these kinds of things that really make somebody disabled. But having a disability, yes, sets you apart. And I like what you said is very black and white that you, yes, you are different and there's no denying that, but it doesn't mean you're anything less than. You're still capable. You still can play. You can still learn. You can still grow, but you just have that label of a disability. Yeah. Wording is hard. I noticed, especially because I'm big on social media, on Instagram with Mindfully Inclusive. And, you know, I followed, like, I want to learn from the adults who have disabilities because, I mean, I don't have one and I'm 
Vincent's voice. So I need to kind of know the terminology and what people, what, what people, what adults would prefer. Right. So it's, it's been a little tricky because I do see mixed opinions, especially on social media. You know, like I totally believe person first language, but I have seen some, you know, influencers, I guess, say they like being called disabled person or saying disabled persons. So it's a little tricky sometimes. And even like special needs, some don't like that. And I use a little bit of everything I find, but I'm definitely okay with obviously saying disability and normalizing it. Yeah. And I mean, you're never going to make everybody happy, right? Exactly. There's some people that are always going to be upset with whichever word you use. I just feel like as long as it's not a derogatory word, and I mean, it really wasn't even that long ago that those derogatory words were acceptable and normalized by society. I mean, a lot of parking places still say handicapped parking only. Right. And so we have a long ways to go. And there's, I don't think anybody should feel shame about using the words that they do. And if they do encounter somebody that is offended by that word, I mean, all you can do is apologize and, you know, try to move on from that. Right. And it's hard to remember who likes whichever (laughs) word to describe them. But I think that's just, you know, we have to have compassion for ourselves and we have to have compassion for others and, you know, not be so judgmental, which is hard for a lot of our society. But this is the part of just growing, right? So much has changed over the last few decades and it will continue to change. And I think 2020 put a big spotlight on all minorities, right? And the biggest minority in the world is people with disabilities. And so we had a big spotlight put on us. And I think a lot of there's way more representation in media and stuff even now that I've seen of people in wheelchairs in shows and people with different types of cognitive disabilities actually being hired as actors in shows and movies and stuff. So it is definitely a hard path to navigate of knowing what language to use. But I think if we all have compassion for each other and if the wrong word or you don't resonate with that word, mm-hmm. still to have compassion for that person who used it. Exactly. It's it's coming from the right place. So we're all still like learning too. And I think, like I said, people are wanting to learn and that's the best part is their willingness and openness to learn. So we're moving in the right direction. Yep, I agree. And that's how we achieve inclusion. <laughs> yep. Okay, so I guess since talking about COVID, how has COVID changed things in your life? Do you think it's helped or hindered your in- inclusion? Yeah, I think thankfully for us, for how young Vincent is, it hasn't really impacted us too much negatively because Vincent was still able to go to preschool in the fall and it has continued to stay open mostly. You know, he's really just in school for that social interaction and to be around other children. So online would be near impossible for that. Yeah. But I could see how for kids older than him, how moving to virtual learning or homeschooling would hinder that ability to be in an inclusive classroom. Yeah, for sure. And in the beginning, like with COVID and everything quieting down and I was pregnant with our second child, so little Miss Violet was born in May, right in the beginning of it all, and I think we didn't realize we so much so needed the downtime and the 
time at home in the beginning. I Mm -hmm. can be a bit of a busybody sometimes and just all our appointments for Vincent. I like to keep up on everything. So we had to cancel a lot or go virtual and the home time for Vincent actually was more beneficial than I really, I, I didn't expect, you know, and he was starting to figure out how to army crawl a bit and to get into things more around the house because he wasn't being rushed off to appointments every morning. And so the downtime was for us as a family really good for a while. You know, my husband's shift at work even changed to kind of a COVID shift and he was home a bit more and helping with a new baby and with Vincent's needs and I think we even had a hospital stay at one point in there because of a seizure medication Vincent was on and that, you know, as this journey entails, it's it's always unexpected when something like that can happen. So you need both parents for sure and you need lots of support and mm-hmm. yeah, so That's not too good. much negative for us, but... Okay, and then just going back to Mindfully Inclusive, do you want to just tell us like what drove you to start it and what exactly is it? Yeah, so a few things. A big part of me was really missing working and my independence. And, you know, being a mom of two littles, just your brain needs more sometimes. At least for me, I was missing that big time. I loved my career prior to having kids, I mean. And so this is something I'm super passionate about. And I've been super inspired to do this. Uh, Mindfully Inclusive launched in February. And I have started it by especially creating educational inclusive toolkits for families. These toolkits are themed, so they change seasonally. And they're full of fun activities for littles and there's a book a children's book in each kit that focuses on you know disabilities and differences and how to be inclusive so I just launched the summer kit the friendship kit and I've collaborated with another mom so there's crayons in the kits that say be kind custom crayons and it's been really awesome to start this journey and to share it with everybody. Like I said earlier, there's a blog as well that is there for all parents needing any form of support. And all the proceeds have gone directly to Vincent to help him with all the therapies we try and that we do to support him to help him live his best life. That's awesome. So is it kind of like a subscription box or do you have to order it each time? It's the same idea, but I didn't make it where you have to sign up for each one. So they launch quarterly, but um, you don't have to commit to buying each one quarterly. So don't have to subscribe, but um, yeah, same idea. Okay, cool. And then so you said that this is for mainly for littles. What do you mean by little? What are the age ranges you're talking about? I guess... Like, I don't like to put an age just because it is for children of all abilities. But I Mm -hmm. would say, like, if you think about books and coloring and like some of the books that I've chosen to feature have, they do say ages like three to 10 on the back of them. So to me, you can be of any young age to start educating and learning about disabilities. Like there is no minimum, but, 
you know, around that age two or three is probably the age that they'll start using the the tools in the kits. There's yoga cards that have some sign language on them and those can be used for all ages for sure. And even as a mom myself and as a parent, it's it's for me too. So it's for the whole family, really. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm definitely going to put my order in for mm-hmm. a box and give it to my nephews. And, you know, with just them having me in their life, they are more aware of accessible parking and accessible bathrooms. And when they see other kids in wheelchairs too, they're not afraid, mm-hmm. right? They just go up to them and talk to them just like they would with any other kid. And I love seeing that because that is true inclusion. Totally. That's awesome. Okay, so based on that, then what are some things you want people to know about inclusion? That it's really not that hard to educate your children. Like just even with these children's books I've started reading, I've learned so much myself and it helps to spark the conversations in homes. We should all be more aware, I guess, of those who live with a disability. We may not always see or recognize when someone has one. So it's important to be mindful of that and you know, maybe there's a reason someone isn't as good at something as you'd expect them to be. So we should think before we judge and assume and try to give everyone an equal opportunity to learn and partake. Like I said before, you know, disability community is huge. It's a big part of this world. And sometimes they're invisible too, like the disabilities themselves. So so if you come across someone who has a disability and you know, or whatever, then, you know, just take the opportunity to maybe make eye contact or smile or say hello or have a good day. Like, I think that goes a really long way. Yeah, I agree. Because I don't always get that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've been asked a number of times, how do I talk to somebody with a disability? Or what can I do to be a better ally towards people with disabilities? And my answer to that is exactly what you said, make eye contact, smile. Even though we're wearing masks right now, and you can't really see the smile. You can tell when somebody's smiling at you, right? And I mean, I've been ignored by able-bodied people simply because of my disability. And I know other people have as well. And I think even just talking to, you know, the hundreds of people with disabilities that we talk to, they just want to be seen and heard. And that's it. And it's it doesn't take very much effort to do that. Simple eye contact, saying hello, acknowledging the person's existence is huge. And, you know, we talk about disability etiquette a lot with all of our volunteers, with all of our staff members, all of our students. This is something that we talk about a lot. And Part of that is just talking to people with disabilities as if you were talking to somebody without a disability, Mm -hmm. right? Treating them the same, asking them their name, what kind of colors they like, what sports do they like? All of these things that we talk about with neurotypical able-bodied people, that's really how you talk to people with disabilities as well. And I feel like having these kinds of conversations is what brings that out in other people. And You know, I've been in this scenario where, I I mean, I'm a kid magnet. Kids just come to me. Mm -hmm. And I've been at a soccer game and a little toddler came up to me and started touching my wheels. And, you know, it's okay. I'm not going to scare them off or anything. But it would be the parent who'd be like, no, no, no. Like, don't say anything. Don't touch anything. Mm -hmm. And then that kid sees sees the parent reacting like that. And so their first emotion they feel is fear. Mm-hmm. So now they've associated wheelchair or disability with fear. 
And I think that's kind of where that stigma starts, right? And it's a very subconscious thing when you're a toddler, you don't really have complex thought yet. But just that association of, oh, I touched a wheelchair and now I'm afraid. And so I've often said to the parents, you know, it's okay. I'm going to tell your child why I'm in a wheelchair without going into all the details. And I'd rather that I tell them the truth than you go around the corner and tell them a lie and then perpetuate that stigma, right? So I feel like there's a lot of learning for both parents and children about what inclusion really is and that there shouldn't really be really be any fear associated with anybody that's different. Yeah, absolutely. It starts with the parents big time. I mean, I've had to learn so much to understand Vincent's, you know, genetic disorder and to learn how we can help him. But I want to continue to learn, like, as much as I want people to understand him, I want to help the community understand all the kiddos. So it really does stem from the parents educating themselves so the children can learn from them because they just mimic what they see, right? Yeah, 100%. And one thing that you said to me, this was probably last year now, I think that really made my heart melt is when Drew brought Vincent to Ryu for a few sessions Mm -hmm. and that he really enjoyed seeing other people with disabilities working out because he didn't really realize the extent of really what disability means, right? Mm -hmm. And I really liked that you said that it opened up his eyes to like the potential that there is there for your son. And I absolutely love that. That's, you know, we've gotten that feedback a few times from people, from clients saying that they love watching other people work out too, because it gives them that sense of I'm not alone in this and that there's hope for my child, for my friend, for my husband, for my sibling, for whoever that, you know, they can live a good life and they can be healthy. Yeah. It's so inspiring walking into Ryu and before, you know, COVID and the restrictions and everything. I loved being able to bring grandma or grandpa or, you know, an aunt or anybody because it just opens people's eyes and gives them the opportunity to see like the community. And, you know, I remember when I wanted to start Mindfully Inclusive and I was thinking about what to call it and how to do it and all these things. And my brother said to me, you know, I wish when I was a kid, there was something like this. So I could have learned more about children with disabilities and be more, you know, educated on Vincent and be able to help more or something he said. And I was like, oh, <laughs> but it's so true. Like we, we don't know until we know until we're faced with something like this. So, yeah. Exactly. And the power of social media is really helping drive that message along to equality and inclusion. And like I said, 2020 really put those words in the spotlight. And I think that we got to run with this momentum, which you definitely are. So good job. Totally. I mean, who would have thought starting up a small little business like this would be smart during a pandemic, right? But what do I have to lose? I mean, (laughs) exactly, right? And I think more than ever, people really do want to support each other and small businesses and with, you know, big box stores staying open and small places having to shut down. It's been hard, but people are going to online and shopping that way or browsing. Mm -hmm. So it's been, I think, more successful than I even anticipated. That's awesome. Yeah, I've sold about 100 kits at least. So I'm pretty excited. That's amazing. So I guess to wrap up, 
what actions can people take today to be more inclusive? And I guess, how can people be allies of people with disabilities, in your opinion? I think just like, let's, let's raise inclusive children together. Let's teach them not to say what is wrong with so-and-so and, and educate ourselves. You know, the first thing we can ask instead is what is your name and introduce yourself. So that's really what I'm trying to get across with these kits in a way for the community to be more inclusive just to spread kindness by being more mindful of those with disabilities when you go out into the community and look at the accessibility in your workplace or local malls, grocery stores. Like, could someone with a wheelchair gain access as easily as you? What if a door isn't accessible? Like, do you look back behind you to see if you could hold it open for a wheelchair user or even a mom with a stroller? Like, let's all just be a little bit more aware and mindful. And I think those little thoughts if they come into your day when you go back to work that you know after the weekend or what have you it just helps to open up doors and people's eyes yeah I love that and you know one thing that you'd said let's teach our kids not to say what's wrong with you yeah I totally agree with that too because there's nothing wrong with anybody with a disability but I think one way that they can ask if they are curious is, you know, would you mind telling me the story of your child or would you mind telling me why you're using a wheelchair? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, when you come from that place of genuine curiosity, I find that most people are really open to sharing their story and telling their story of their disability, but it is key in the words that you use. Yes. And I think we get that a lot as parents. It's just kids' natural instinct, you know, to say what is wrong with him when he's going down the hallway at school with his walker. And, And I'm quick to say, well, nothing's wrong with him. But, you know, this walker helps him to be supported to walk. And he just walks different than you. So, I think once kids know that different is okay and understand that there's differences out there, then it makes it a lot easier to explain too. Yeah, totally. Well, this has been an amazing conversation, very enlightening. And I really hope that people who are listening really take away the point of inclusion. And I hope that they really make changes in their life and try to be more inclusive in their communities and in their families and in their homes, because these kinds of things really do have ripple effects, whether we see them today or not. People are taking note of the words being used and they're taking note of the actions and the body language and the tone of voice being used when talking to people with disabilities or anybody that's different really so I want to like thank you very much for you know sharing your story so openly and for starting mindfully inclusive because it is something that is very much needed in our community is there anything else that you would like to add just thank you guys for you know featuring me and allowing me to share a bit about our story and our journey and if people are interested in learning more about us and what I have to offer, you know, it's very easy to find us, mindfullyinclusive.ca or mindfullyinclusive on Instagram. And I hope that we can continue this journey and in inspiring and educating and featuring littles on the blog because the feedback has been really positive so far. And I know myself, I'm learning still, and it's been really, really inspiring. So thank you guys. 
Thank you very much, Miranda. And thank you for listening to our episode of with Mindfully Inclusive. And we will put her contact information in the show notes if you would like to get in contact. And we highly recommend ordering your box and uh, supporting these local mamas. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. As always, we would greatly appreciate if you could subscribe, leave us a five-star review, and a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as this helps us increase our reach. And stay tuned for another episode coming at you in two weeks.